0: Alright, good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian Church of Vestas Park. We're disciples of Jesus to build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Aaron. And I'm thrilled to have you guys with us today as we are getting close to the very end of our summer series on following Jesus. That's what we've been doing. And uh, just a little reminder there, of our chili cook-off is coming up. Uh, pretty soon, it's uh, two weeks from now, September 19th, and uh, that you will come. I promise I'll make a new batch of chili, uh, which will be very good. And inside of your bulletins, you open up. There is a uh, invite card. There. It's also our Back to Church Sunday uh, nationally, and we'll be kicking off a new series called Kingdom Perks. Now, all this summer, we've been talking about following Jesus, right? And what the call is, and what it is. And uh, we're going to be taking six weeks after that and we we'll are talking about what is it that we gain as Christians, what does it mean when we follow, what are the benefits that we have of being part of this new kingdom. And So there's an invite card that you have in there and what I'd like you to do is to be praying for somebody that you can invite and pray in advance first The guy will show you, give them the opportunity to, to really... Uh, uh, for him to work in your heart and also in their life. And then this is a tool. You say, hey, our church should be doing this. We'd love to have you join us. And then, of course, invite them to join us for the cook-off afterwards because that's going to be lots of fun. All right. Well, if we get into the message today, uh, this is uh, the memory verse for the series. When Jesus gave uh, this memory verse, which actually this passage, he talked about it earlier on in his ministry. The disciples, of course, recognized that there was a call that they needed to forfeit everything in their life in order to follow Jesus. And then after the events of today... Uh, that we're going to talk about today, I think this passage gained a whole new depth of meaning. And, and so as we cover that on the second half of Holy Week. But uh, since we're here, let's make sure that we remind ourselves of this passage and then we'll get into the message. Here we go. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16:24. Awesome. All right, let's test ourselves. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." Matthew 16:24. Awesome. Well, since you have that memorized, here's a place on your uh Connection card that has a, a Bible memory verse card. So if you would like to have that as a tool to remind yourself of this is a powerful passage, uh, take that with you today. Now uh, we are this far. We've gone all the way through the life of Christ, his uh, his ministries. We're near the very end, the second half of Holy Week. Uh, and uh, these are the darkest days. Uh, we start of course, Holy Week with Sunday with the triumphal entry. Monday we had Jesus curse the fig tree. Uh, he cleanses the temple Tuesday, He gets challenged by all those critics. He has the, uh, predicts the end of the world as well as the, the look of the, uh, what Israel's going to look like. in uh, 40 years after he was there, the, the end of Israel. Uh, he uh, was anointed by Mary with perfume for his uh, burial. In advance, and of course, Judas betrays him for thirty pieces of silver, fulfilling the prophet Zechariah's uh, prophecy. That's exactly what would happen. Ash Wednesday, not much happens. Jesus was done in his ministry with with the world. This was done. His time of teaching and everything was done. He spends that time with his disciples. This last uh, little bit of time. Then we get to Thursday, which is uh, known as Monday. Thursday, uh, and uh, the first thing, that of course, we see there is the Last Supper. This was the fourth Passover that Jesus celebrated with His disciples as part of the official ministry. This would bring us up to the year 80:30. Uh, and Jesus sends James and Peter, two of His trusted disciples, into uh, Jerusalem to prep for. Passover one of the holy festivals that they had so they go into town Jesus gives them some very strange instructions though because they said where do you want us to set up Passover for you because he's staying in Bethany he says well once you go into Jerusalem and you're going to meet a guy there by the gate who's carrying water follow him and then when he goes into a house you go into that house and then when you go into the house ask the owner of the house uh, where is the guest room and then Jesus said once you do that the man who's the owner of the house will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. It's like a Mission's Impossible kind of strange thing, right? The second time Jesus has some some strange provision for what he wanted to do, like uh, we had the donkey on. Uh, he had set up. Uh, for his triumphal entry. And now this, uh, that God always provisions his will, right? Even if it doesn't make sense to us, he's make sure that he's got stuff going on that we can't understand. And that's, and so the disciples do that. They follow his instructions and sure enough, everything happened as Jesus had said. They find the upstairs room and that room that they've follow their path, they would have gone through the upper room is in that uh, just below the upper portion of Jerusalem, the upper city. That would have been the the Essene area, and that's kind of the area where Jesus had set up in the upper room. Of course, all those buildings were destroyed in AD 70 when uh, Rome sacked the city and it was destroyed. So that building isn't there any longer, but we know pretty much exactly where it was. So that's where it was. So uh, the disciples, James and and, uh, Peter go down or John and Peter go down. They get the lamb, they sacrifice, they slaughter the lamb, they prep the meal, they prep the table and everything like that. And later on in the afternoon, the other disciples come to join them and they uh, celebrate this Passover at the Last Supper. And it looked like this. Actually, no, probably looked more like this. That's a triclinia. It's a three-sided table, banquet table that they would have uh, seated at. Um, How the seating would work is this front area right there. That's the area where the host family would sit. And then going clockwise around the table, you would go from least important guest to most important guest, and this will matter in a little bit. And then, of course, at the very end, you would have the most important guest. From the details that we pick up from the Last Supper in Scripture, we find that this is the place that Jesus would have sat, part of the host family. He would have sat there. Um, He was uh, across from him. You would have Peter, who was sitting at the seat of the most honored guest, Uh, To his right, his right-hand man would have been John, uh, sitting there kind of resting up against Jesus. And then to his left, Judas Iscariot. Okay, so while they were sitting here, they were enjoying the Passover meal. And all of a sudden, they start complaining and arguing about who's the most important. Now, can you see why they would do that? They didn't like where they were seated. And Jesus hears this, and he's frustrated with them because this is the third time in Scripture it's recorded they had the same argument. And three times, Jesus has to go to them and say, guys, stop it. Right? The people in this world argue about stupid stuff like that. If you want to be great in my kingdom, become the greatest servant. And then to show that was true, he gets up from the meal, and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, this was mid-meal. This is not normally you'd wash your feet when they came in, and that would have happened. But Jesus is making a point here. So he takes off his outer garment. He puts on a towel so he's like a servant. And he goes around the table, probably starting with John and working his way around, washing each of his disciples' feet. And he gets to the very end where Peter was seated. And Peter says, no way, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. This is not proper, right? And Jesus said, Peter, if you don't allow me to do this, you don't have any part with me. So Peter said, well, then fine, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, man, that's not the point, Right? You're already clean. You're taking a bath. It's all this. You don't need that. I'm setting an example for you, and you're going to be blessed if you follow it. Serve one another. And after he makes that point, Jesus takes off the towel, puts on his outer garment, sits back down for the meal, and then he has an announcement for them. He says, hey, guys, there's a betrayer among us. And as they're sitting there at the table, every one of them, starting with Peter, asks Jesus in succession, is it me, Lord? Surely it can't be me. And then they go around the table, Peter, and then uh, they get there. And finally, you go around and imagine Judas is sitting there feeling pretty sus, right? He's like, okay. And so he's like, surely, Lord, not me. And Jesus said, yeah, it's you. But the rest of the apostles didn't pick up on that, apparently, because then it says that Peter calls over to John, who was resting against Jesus. And he says, just ask him which one he's talking about. <laughs> so John leans over to Jesus and said, hey, just tell us. And then Jesus said, Well, it's the person I'm going to give this piece of bread to. And he dips the bread in, the, in some, some wine, and then he hands it to Judas, who was sitting next to him. And it says, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up from the table and heads out to betray Jesus. But the disciples, being about as smart as we are, they look at that and they're like, well, Jesus must have sent uh, Judas out for like an errand or something, right? And the fact that they could not fathom that Judas would be the betrayer tells you how much they trusted him. It says he was the guy who carried their money, right? He was the one that was seated right next to Jesus. There was no way they thought this was the guy who could possibly betray Jesus. And so... They're sitting at the table and they're still wondering who the betrayer is. And Jesus basically, then the next thing, he predicts Peter's denial because it's on their mind. Surely none of us are going to betray you. And Peter says, I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus said, you know what, Peter? Actually, you are. Satan's asked to sift you. And, and I'm praying that, that, that it's not going to be too bad. But I'm going to tell you before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will have betrayed me three times. But then he goes on to say, but when, when you recover from that, strengthen your brothers because they're all going to abandon me tonight as well. And after Jesus gives this pretty heavy news to them, he offers them a new command. And command, another word for command in our language would be mandate, right? And that comes from the Latin mandatum or, or uh, Monday, which is why this is called Monday Thursday. It's the day we were given this new command. It's very important. It's something that Jesus gives to us very powerfully. We find it in John 13, and it says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This new command is the defining mark of the Christian, just like the law is the defining mark of the Jew. This is the way that the world is supposed to know that we're genuinely His. And this is what Jesus said. The world will know you if you do this. And the way that we love one another is modeled after how Christ loves us. And it's important for us as Christians then to hear this. This is a command, not a suggestion. We are to love one another. And as Jesus gives this new command, He also then pairs it next with a new covenant. Now... This was nearing the end of the Passover meal, right? There's, and uh, there's four cups in the Passover meal. They pass the cup four times around, and each one has a different symbolism as to what they're celebrating. How Jesus, how God, sep, uh, cele- freed the people. That's like a word got stuck there. Got freed from the from the people of, uh, from Egypt as they set them free, but also His promise to then help their store them later on. And and so the first cup was a cup of sanctifi- um, verse of sanctification. The next one was deliverance. The third cup that he now holds up was the cup of redemption. And as he passes this cup of redemption, gets to that part of the meal, he, he pairs it now with also a whole new covenant that would be based upon that redemption. And so we read in Scripture, he took the bread first and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I imagine the disciples, when they heard this, their minds went back to a couple years earlier when Jesus basically turned away most of his followers. He he thinned out the crowds by saying, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no place with me. And now it made sense. Jesus is saying, this is my body. and I'm going to be broken for you so that you don't have to be broken. And he wanted us to make sure we didn't forget it, so he gave us food, because that's the one thing he can count on humans doing is eating. (laughs) Remember this. And it becomes the first sacrament of the new covenant that he is instituting right then. And after he had passed the bread and they'd eaten, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the means of our redemption that God has given us. And Jesus foretells them, tells them this is happening. And that this new covenant is based upon the redemption that we have. Being purchased back from the, from the penalty of sin. From the wages of death. That he was going to die so that we wouldn't have to. That he was buying our freedom. Buying our way back into God's good grace. And so we have the old covenant, which Jesus, as well being a Jew, as well as all of the people of Israel are part of. A covenant that was that was for the, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, of Jacob, but Jesus is now instituting a covenant that later we found would be open to all people. Even me, even you could be part of this. The old covenant was one that was a base that, that was open to only the people of Israel, but it was also one that was. That was based through uh, law. It was based upon this. You had to, to go through all of these laws in order to be right with God, in order to be separate and holy. And, and then because nobody kept all those laws, it was a covenant then that required perpetual sacrifice for the sins that the people kept committing. And just like them, we do the same thing. But Jesus now offers a new covenant, a different way to interact with God and to be on His side. Not one based upon law, but now one based upon God's grace. Him giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. And therefore, a covenant that could no longer... Put up with or tolerate perpetual sacrifice instead of a perpetual sacrifice day after day with the priest going into the temple and slaughtering animals on behalf of people because we're just sinful. God himself showed up as the lamb. And he had a final sacrifice, one for all time, so that we could enjoy God's grace and we could be united with God. So that we now could be called to love one another as he had loved us. And he passes that cup. And the disciples entered it in the first 12 in this new covenant with God. And after he does that, the meal, Jesus says uh, to them, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it in my kingdom. Well, there's four cups of the Passover. And that fourth cup was one that Jesus says, I'm not going to drink. Not until this is done. And that fourth cup is a cup of praise. It was a cup of reminding him that God was going to restore all of his people together. The cup of redemption. And that's the cup we look forward to drinking with Jesus when he comes again. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Pretty awesome, isn't that? you well, after this, then Jesus, then he shares with them. We call it the farewell discourse, but he's just spending some time with the guys he loves so much. And he has just a few hours left, and he wants to make sure he encourages them and, and, and prepares them. And so he goes through this time, and I want you to read it your own because I don't have time to cover everything. But basically, he, he reminds them that he is God and, and that he's going to go to the Father, right? And his boss is going to come back for them. Right? He's not going to leave them as orphans. And he warns them, listen, the world hates me. It's going to hate you, but don't worry about that. Don't let it take you off of, uh, off of the game, right? Because he promises he's going to send his Holy Spirit. is going to be with us and empower us and, and actually be in us. And beyond that, he says not only is the Holy Spirit going to help you, but he also says you're going to have a couple of gifts that I'm going to give you. One of them, you're going to be sad for a little while while I'm dead, but then I'm going to come alive again, and you're going to have a joy that no one in the world can ever take away. And not only joy, but you're also going to have access to God now because you stand on your own. You don't need a priest anymore. You're going to be able to talk to God and you're going to pray and he's going to hear you. And not only that, but you're also going to have a peace that the world can't take away because you are going to see a victory that nothing in the world can undo. And as he gives them these last instructions, he then finishes up with a priestly prayer for his people. But Jesus stands before God and shows us now what his work is, what he's doing right now in our behalf. And he begins by praying that God would glorify himself through what Christ was about to do. And as he prays for God's glory, he then prays for the 12. And he prays that God would protect them spiritually and physically for the work that they were going to do as he sanctifies them thoroughly from the inside out. And after he prays for them, Jesus prays for me and you directly. In fact, it's the only place in Scripture that we see Jesus praying directly for us. And do you know what Jesus prayed for me and you? He prayed that we would be unified, just as God the Father and God the Son are unified, just in that same way, he prayed that we as the body of Christ would be unified with him and also with each other, that we would actually love one another. And the fact that Jesus had to ask God for that tells you how hard it is. But he's for us, not against us. And he's at work in this body so that we can keep that command, that we can truly love one another. After he offers this amazing prayer, Jesus takes his disciples and says, it's time for us to go. And he leads them out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is outside of the city. And so they leave that upper room and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which sits just below across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. And when I got to go, this is a picture that I took while we were there. It's beautiful. And he would take his disciples there to pray. And so they sing a song and the hymn, and they, they go through the city, and they end up there. And then as so they arrive, Jesus was very heavy in his spirit and his heart. And he calls uh, his three favorite disciples, the ones that were closest to him, because James and Peter and and, uh, and John, and he says, come with me and pray. And they do, and, and uh, he sets them up in his face. He says, listen, guys, uh, the hour is, is getting close, and I need you guys to pray, right? Because the devil's going to sift you, and it's going to be hard, so and so he sets them up there, and then Jesus goes, a stones throw away, and he begins to pray himself to God. And he asks God, he said, Lord, Heavenly Father, if, if you could just take this cup away, this suffering away, if there's any way that we, could, that we could get around this, that would be fantastic. Right? Let's do that. But he kept coming back around to him, This is why I came. So, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he, after he had that prayer, he comes back to the three, and he discovers that They're sleeping. And and it says in Scripture they were sleeping not because they were lazy, but because they were so exhausted because of grief. Jesus had told them that they were going to deny him before the end of the night. That's pretty heavy news. And they were so exhausted by that grief they just couldn't stay awake. And Jesus says, guys, you have to get up. right? You need to pray. Like The devil is truly asking to sift you. This is not you pray for yourselves. And the fact that Jesus asked them to pray for themselves and not for him shows his heart. And Jesus goes back, and he, he talks to God again, and, and one more time he says to God, Lord, if, Heavenly Father, if there's a way that, that we could not do this, let's do that. But again, it's not my will, but yours be done. He comes back to the disciples, the three, and of course they're sleeping again. He's like, guys, can't you just stay up one hour and pray? please. And, and, he, and he tells them again how important it was that they, stay, that they, they talk to God and that they would be strong in the spirit. He cares so deeply for them. But then he goes back and he talks to God this third, final time. And it says, again, he asked God to take away uh, this suffering, to take this cup from him. And it says that he prayed so earnestly. He was so, such, uh, he was so turmoiled from the inside that his sweat was like blood coming drips from his forehead. He was just... He was extremely broken and stressed and, and knowing what was about to happen. But he's still in the midst of that, even though it was something God was calling and the Father was calling him to something so awful. He remembered Isaiah 53, the prophet who spoke 700 years before him that, that uh, was read to us this morning. He knew what was he was facing. And yet he said again, but Father, not my will, yours be done. And he looks out and he sees an armed posse coming down from the temple mount. And he wakes up his disciples and he says, guys, wake up. There's no more time. The hour is at hand. And that's where we find that Jesus is then arrested. And this posse, this armed posse had clubs and swords and all these things coming down to arrest this teacher, Jesus. Comes down to get him, was led by the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And Jesus meets them at the edge of the garden. And in the B- Gospel of John is my favorite account of this because it starts with some the, with the other ones. They, they didn't get to ride in there. But I think it's hilarious because they show up and Jesus is there. And he's like, who are you looking for? <laughs> and they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, that's me. And the power of that knocked them all down. Boom. And they were like, whoa. And they get back up, and he's like, I'm going to ask you again. Who are you, who are you after? And it's like, are you really sure, guys, you want to go through with this? But they did want to go through with it. And they said, we're here to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. He says, well, I told you, I am he. And then Judas Iscariot walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek, says, greetings, teacher. Because that was the sign that he set up with the guards that this is the guy he kisses when they're supposed to arrest. And Jesus looks at his old friend and says, Judas, you really going to betray me, God the Son, with a kiss? And Jesus says to the, apos- to the rest of the, the mob there, he says, Listen, guys, you're here for me. Let everybody else go free, right? They're, they're, you have no qualm with them. Well, Peter had a qualm with the people trying to arrest Jesus. He was reminded of what Jesus had said, that that he was going to deny him. He was going to show Jesus wrong. He's not going to deny him. And he pulls out his sword, and he swipes at one of them and misses just a little bit, because I guarantee he wasn't aiming for the ear. No one has that good of aim. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus, which was the uh, high priest's servant. And after he did this, Jesus looks over and he says, Peter, put away your sword. We're not like that. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. His kingdom is different. And Jesus bends down into the dirt, picks up that ear, and sticks it back on Malchus' head, which is crazy, and heals him. And then he's arrested. And, the, and of course, uh, the armed posse tries to arrest the other apostles. They escape. John barely gets away. He, they rip off his clothes, and he runs off in the night naked. And, and all everybody was alone, Jesus with just his captors. And then we begin Good Friday the day eternity changed. They lead Jesus out of that garden, and they take him to his first trial before the Sanhedrin. First, they take him to the high priest Ananias' house. Then he was the old high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the acting high priest, and so they lead him out to Caiaphas' house, which is actually one of those places that we know exactly where it is, because of the ruins that are there. Uh, and so they lead him up to the upper city, to the Hootie Woody fancy area of town and they have a mock trial in fact it was an illegal trial because it was held after the sun went down which was was illegal but they did it anyway And it was also a kangaroo court because they also knew that Jesus was going to be guilty and sentenced to death no matter what he said. And so they brought in all of these people that brought false witnesses and they contradicted each other and all of that. And they weren't getting anywhere. Finally, the high priest, Caiaphas, steps up and he says, all right, Jesus, just tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I absolutely am. In fact, you're going to see me coming in the, with glory as I come with the, with the, on the clouds with all the, the angels. And Caiaphas, well, after hearing this, he rips his robe and he says to everybody else, You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. It's important to remember that Jesus was sentenced to death because he claimed to be God. That's why. He didn't do anything else. He claimed to be God. And anybody else who says that people, followers of Jesus, follow him because he never claimed to be God have no idea what they're talking about. I think that maybe they should read the original text. Jesus claimed to be God, and that's what they got so mad about. That's why they wanted him dead. And so it was an illegal trial. And so after that happened, uh, they started beating him and saying, prophesy then if you're really this great prophet and the son of God, tell him, who, tell us who hit you and all of those things. And they tormented him and then they threw him into a, a cellar for the rest of the night because they needed to do an official trial the next morning. As so that's where they held him. While all this was happening, Peter had followed Jesus from a distance and one of the other apostles pulled some strings and got Peter into Caiaphas's house to the the courtyard that was outside. And it didn't go well for him. That's where we find his three denials. So it was pretty late at night when all this took place, getting around midnight and and everything. It was cold. And so the people that were outside, the guards and whatnot, started a fire. Peter gets in there, sits around the fire, and a servant girl sees him in the firelight and is studying his face, like really uh, injury-like, was really intently looking at him. And finally she says, you're one of them. You're with Jesus. I know. I, I knew I recognized you. And Peter was like, uh-uh, girl. I'm not who you think I was. I don't know who that guy was. I'm just sitting out this fire because, right? So then he gets up in the fire and he goes, stands out in a different area in the courtyard to kind of getting away from her, kind of maybe hiding his face from the flames. And then a different servant sees Jesus and also makes a, or sees Peter and says the same thing. I'm pretty sure you're with him. And again, Peter said, I I swear I don't know who you're talking about. And then the third time, it was the everybody else who were there in the courtyard were like, you know what, you have a Galilean accent, it gives you away, you were definitely with Jesus. And then he calls down curses from heaven, he's like, may God curse me ever so harshly if I am lying to you, if I ever knew the man Jesus, I don't know who you're talking about. And just then a rooster crowed, and Peter was reminded of Jesus' prediction. And it also says that Jesus had a window where Peter was able to look in at him. Jesus looked out that window right at Peter. And Peter was cut to the quick. And he recognized how deeply he had failed. And he ran out of the courtyard crying. And so Jesus was truly, fully alone. He spent the rest of that night in darkness. The next morning, probably around 6 a.m., he would have been 5 to 6 a.m., would have been waking. Pulled out of that dark cell, and he would be taken up for the second trial before the Sanhedrin. This would have been their legal trial because now it's their sunlight, which they would have brought him through the city up to the temple. And uh, they basically, it was a very short trial. They asked him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, Yes, I am. And they said, Worthy of death. That was it. And because of that, he, the next step was then they wanted to take him over to be tried before Pilate. See, the thing was the Jews couldn't kill Jesus. I mean, they could stone him to death, but that's not what they wanted him crucified. They want an example of him. Plus, this was a holy weekend. They weren't going to be able to, to stone him to death or they would become unclean. So they had this, uh, they want to take him before Pilate, which was happening to be next door. It's about 6 to 7 in the morning. And so Pilate, uh, who was right next door at, his, uh, at the palace there, at Fortress Antonia, uh, they bring Jesus before him, and they said, This is a guy that deserves death. And Pilate's like, Well, what did he do? And they're like, Well, he's, you know, claiming to be a king. And Pilate's like, All right bring him in because he's an insurrectionist. Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus said, well, yes, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's bigger than this world. If my kingdom was of this world, I would be an insurrectionist. I would have an army and we would go to war and we try to fight against you. But you notice that there's no army. And that's because my kingdom is bigger than this world. It's not of this world. And Pilate hears this. He's like, well, you're not a threat. And he goes out to to the crowd and he's like, hey guys, good news. I talked to Jesus not guilty, no threat, he's not doing anything wrong, he's, not, he's no problem. And the Jews start saying, yes, he is a problem, you need to kill him. And he said, why? He said, well, he started up in, in Galilee in that whole area, and he raised all kinds of trouble, and now he's down here in Judah, and he's creating all kinds of trouble. He's a troublemaker. And, and, and Pilate was like, wait a second, did you say that he was from Galilee? Because see, Galilee wasn't in the area of uh, Pilate's jurisdiction. That was under Herod's jurisdiction. So he's like, great, I'm going to send this down to Herod for this, his problem. And so he takes Jesus to Herod. And he has his trial there. Now, Herod was in town because of Passover, and he also had a huge palace that was there. So Jesus was taken to that palace, and Herod wanted to meet Jesus because he heard of these miracles, and he wanted to see it. Now, remember, Herod was the same guy who killed John the Baptist, right? And so maybe he was like, maybe it's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Maybe I want to see these miracles. And so he begins to try Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say anything to him. It's like, I have nothing to say to you. And so then Herod gets frustrated and starts to mock him, puts a robe on him and a crown of thorns and starts to mock him and all that kind of stuff. And then once he had his fun, he, he sends him back to Pilate without any verdict because he's like, I, I don't know if he's dangerous or not. He wouldn't tell me anything. So Jesus is taken back before Pilate for his second trial. Of course, they go back to the, uh, to the fortress there. And meanwhile, as Jesus comes back to him, Pilate's wife goes and visits Pilate and says, listen. I've been having horrible dreams all night long about this Jesus. Don't do anything to him, right? And Pilate, of course, hears that, and so he's like, I don't want to mess with this Jesus, right? And, uh, and they bring Jesus back to him, and he's like, Herod didn't find anything wrong with him, and he's, so he goes back out, and he's like, he's, guilt, he's not guilty. There's nothing I can do. But then the people were like, no, he is guilty. He claims to be a king, and, and Pilate's like, I know, I heard that. But he said, yeah, but anybody who came, claims to be a king is actually going against Caesar. You see, we have no king but Caesar. And now Pilate's in a difficult situation because if he lets Jesus go, he'll be accused of being okay with insurrection. And if he kills Jesus, then he would have gone against what his wife had told him, the warning and killing an innocent person. So what is he going to do? He has a solution. He's going to flog Jesus. And that's what he does. And so he orders that Jesus is taken, and he's lashed 39 times with the cat-of-nine-tails. It's a wicked uh, implement of torture. It's a a whip that's got nine little ends of leather whip, and on the ends of it are are tied pieces of glass and metal and and rocks so it would dig into the skin and rip it out. And the reason it's only 39 is 40. was considered too cruel and too lethal. And so the maximum level of the law, Jesus' whipped, had flayed his back open. It would have been horrible. After they did that, they... uh, the guards were there and they mocked Jesus. They put that robe that back on him that Pilate had given him, that crown of thorns that Pilate had put on him. They put on his head and they mocked him. And they were like, hey, you know, you're this king of the Jews. How powerful are you? And they, they knelt down before him and they teased him and they hit him. And then after they had their fun, they brought him back to Pilate. And Pilate shows the crowds. He's like, see, I punished him. Can everybody just go home now? And the crowd said, no! That's not enough. And Pilate, of course, did, he was, said, well, if he was guilty of insurrection, what am I going to do? Right? If, I, I, he didn't do anything. So he came up with an idea. He said, you know what? There is a tradition that the governor, I will free one of your prisoners every single year at this celebration as a sign of goodwill. And so I'm going to give you a choice between two prisoners this time. I'll let you pick. The first one is Jesus, who you say is insurrectionist, but he's not guilty. The second one is Barabbas, who is a well-known insurrectionist who was just arrested in an active insurrection where he murdered people. So he is insurrectionist and a murderer. If you really care about insurrection, who are you going to free? And the high priest went through the crowd and they got everyone to say, free Barabbas. And so Pilate <coughs> frees Barabbas. And he says, all right, well, if you want him to go, what should I do with Jesus? Right? He didn't do anything wrong. And the crowd said, crucify him. And he said, but he's done nothing wrong, but they didn't listen. They just shouted louder and louder and louder. And so finally he calls out for some water and he sits on his judgment seat. And he takes the water and he washes his hands and he says, what you are doing is murder. And I'm washing my hands of this. This blood, is, this blood of this man is not on me. And the crowd shouted back, let the blood of this man be on us and on our children for every generation. And then in that kind of corruption, Jesus, God the Son, was handed over to be crucified. And the first thing they did is they, they led him out to be crucified as they were going to take him to the site of it and, and took a little time of preparation. So the guards now... They really mocked Jesus. They put the robe back on stripped him of his clothes. They beat him with their fists. They put a scepter in his hand, a a stick. And then they would take that stick and then smack him with it and knock the crown of thorns into his head and all of this. And then they ripped his robe off of him when he was ready to be taken to to Golgotha. And they made him carry his own cross. And at the top of the cross was a sign that Pilate himself had written in three different languages. It said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And Jesus then is is burdened with his own cross, and he's taken out to Golgotha, which was outside of the city gates, not very far. It's a place that a lot of people would have passed, right? It's right on the, a road that would have been there. In fact, this pathway now is called the Via Della Rosa. It's from the fortress Antonia out to Golgotha, which is, sits underneath the, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today. But this is the path that Jesus would have walked as he carried his own cross to his execution, and he's walking through the streets. There are the, he's being uh, spit at, and people are throwing rocks at him, and they're uh, saying horrible things to him. And uh, he's, as he carries this cross in the midst of all of that hatred and the mob that were saying, I mean, he had done nothing but good things for them. He had healed their sick. He had raised their dead. He had, he had fed them. He had done everything. He'd been kind and merciful and good. And now they turned on him. Well, there were a few women that followed behind, and they were weeping. And Jesus turns to them as he's carrying his cross. He says, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because if there's this kind of corruption, if people will do this now while God is with you in this world, can you imagine how bad it's going to be for you when I'm gone? And he begins to, continues to make his way out of the city. And eventually he falls and collapses under the weight of the cross. Of course, under the beatings and the weight and and the exhaustion. And they pull a man from the crowd, a man named named, uh, Simon. He was uh, from a place called Cyrene. And uh, they force him to help Jesus, and he carries Jesus' cross out to Golgotha, where he was crucified. And he was on the cross for six hours, and the first three hours uh, was a little different. They bring him up on the cross, and the the high priest and everybody was there, and they were just mocking him. And he was crucified between two thieves, and you heard from Isaiah 53 this morning, that 700-year-old prophecy, that's exactly what would happen. He would be executed amongst the criminals, and the thief on the right and on the left, they were also mocking him. And finally, after some time, one of the thieves wisened up. And, and while the other thief was mocking him, he says, listen, what, what are we doing? Like, we're here because we deserve to be here. We've committed crimes. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then this thief who had really nothing to offer Jesus, there he is on the cross. He turns to Jesus and he says, would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, who had received all of this horrible, horrible, unspeakable uh, treatment, he turns to that, that thief who could offer him nothing and said, I tell you the truth, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And that thief was able to die in peace. And By the end of the day, he was with the Lord. And that was the first of the seven phrases that were recorded that Jesus said on the cross. Well, as he's hanging there, of course, the thieves or the, the 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 guards in Psalm twenty two said this would happen, that they would be below him gambling for his clothes, and that's what happened. They were throwing dice for his own things, and he's looking down and, and seeing this and and Jesus sees all of the, the wickedness and the people saying horrible things and how awful it was and he instead of cursing them, he he offers a prayer even for those who were tormenting him and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. They have no idea what they're doing. The heart of Christ. Well, his mother, Mary, was there. And his disciple, John, was also there in the crowd. And even in the midst of his pain and his agony and all of this, underneath the weight of the bearing weight of all the human sins of all time, he had enough that he wasn't just thinking of himself. He saw his mom and and Joseph was already gone. And so he is the eldest son. He was to take care of her. And so he says to his mom, dear woman, John is your new son. And he says, John, this is now your mom. You have to take care of her for me. And John said, okay. It's about noon now. They've been on the cross for three hours, and it says the the sky grew dark. Now, some people think of the supernatural darkness that made the sky inky black, but there's no records of that happening, and certainly an event like that would have been recorded by other sources. I you know, immense when the sun refuses to shine, it got cloudy and dark, and it was a horrible storm. It reminds me a lot of the rage that we would have seen maybe in the days of Noah. Right where the sky becomes nasty and, and, and snarling because Jesus was not just facing a crucifixion and, and the, the rejection of his people, he was being rejected by God himself, his Father. That's what sin does, is it separates us from the Father. And Jesus was now being separated from God. God himself, the Father, looked at his Son and saw our sin, and it was Repulsive. And it was made him angry, and all of the fury of God was now being channeled into that one man. And he turns his face away. He can't even look at his son any longer. And Jesus cries out in agony. That was written in Psalm 22, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I think would be the heaviest and the worst of all the torments. And he cries out that I thirst." As it was recorded in scripture that he would do. And there was people that were on the ground and they took a, a sponge and they put it on a, on a stick and they held it up to Jesus' lips. And it, had to, it was soaked with like vinegary wine. And he was taking a drink. And other people when they heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds in their language a little bit like, e, like Elijah. And they said, if Jesus is calling for Elijah, let Elijah get him a drink. Think how nasty these people were. Just like us. And so they take the stick away. And after Jesus had taken that drink, he declines in, in a very loud voice, it is finished. It's done. And then he says, into your hands, my father, I, I commit my spirit. And he did it not quietly and with a whimper, but it says loudly and boldly because Jesus chose when he was going to die. And he laid down his life and his heart broke and he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, it said there was an earthquake, and this is recorded in other texts, that there was a massive earthquake, and it split rocks, it split graves open, and dead people who were righteous came out of the graves. And then on Easter Sunday, people were like, hey, Grandpa, where were you, right? And he starts walking through, like that happened. And not only that, but in the temple itself, it was shaken so thoroughly that the that the curtain, which is a thick four-inch curtain that stood between the most holy place and the rest of humanity was torn from the top to the bottom. There was no longer a separation between man and God because our sins have been paid for. No longer need a sacrifice. It was done. And even the soldiers... That stood there and witnessed this, looked up at Jesus and said, surely this was the Son of God. Well, the chief priests and all of this, they didn't want to have this spectacle out there, people being crucified on on this special day, right? So they were like, they went to, to Pilate and they're like, can we speed along? Most crucifixions take days. An order, person, would they die by su- suffocation and crucifixion, and and, you, and so you pull your legs up and you could take a breath, and eventually, after you get so exhausted, you can't do that anymore, and then you die. And so to speed it up, what he asked was to have their legs broken, so that way they couldn't pull themselves up any longer and they'd suffocate quicker, so that way they could get them off the cross before their nice, p- precious day, so that you know, they wouldn't be inconvenienced by having this ugly sight outside of town. And Pilate said, that's fine. So the... Soldiers go up and they take a sledgehammer and they break the, the legs of the, of the thieves. And they get to Jesus and they recognize he's already dead. But to make sure that he is, they have to do their job thoroughly. They take a spear and they shove it up into his side and pierce his heart. And it comes out and blood and water come out. Now medically we know that means that he died of a broken heart, which is a fulfillment of, of uh, what Psalm 63 it says exactly how he would die for his people. And so he was there dead and Joseph of arimathea was a man of the uh, rich man he was a part of the sanhedrin and uh, nicodemus who jesus talked to in john three sixteen, was the where he had the conversation where he said god so loved the world that he gave his only son that i would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life that same man that jesus told those things to was also on the sanhedrin and they went to pilate and they said can we take jesus's body down and pilate gave them permission to and so uh so they went, and they, Joseph took Jesus's body down with Pilate or with uh, with, with uh, Nicodemus, and uh, buried him in uh, in Joseph's own tomb. He was a rich, wealthy person. It was a nice tomb. It was an, and uh, was of course never used. And just as uh, the prophets had foretold what would happen, that he would die amongst the wicked, but be buried with the rich, as you heard today. And then they put seventy pounds of spices over Jesus and buried him there, and rolled a. A big stone in front of it. Some of the women Marys were there l- seeing exactly what happened, crying on the outside. And uh, and that was the darkest day. Well, the, uh, the high priest eventually went back. The chief priest went back to Pilate and said, you know what? We did kill Jesus, and I thank you for that. But we heard him prophesy that he would raise again in three days. And it would be lousy if one of his disciples stole him. So this is what we want to do. Can you secure that tomb to make sure that doesn't happen? And Pilate said, that's fine. So Pilate had a seal put over the, the the tomb, that big stone, and then he had a guard place stationed outside of it to make sure that, that Jesus' body wouldn't be stolen. These are the darkest days of all of humanity, the darkest days of all of eternity, but in the midst of that darkness, that God was doing something amazing, and he gave us in this time the brightest hope, a hope that lasts forever. And these are the lessons I want us to take from today's. Message from this area in Jesus's ministry. The first one is Jesus gave us a new covenant. We are not under the old covenant any longer. We're not. We do not relate to God based upon our worthiness or how how much we've obeyed the law. We come to God now on the basis of grace through faith. We we do no longer part of a covenant that has a that has an end of justice that that has a focus and also on righteousness. We have a covenant with God that is that relies on His mercy that is based upon our redemption in Him. Because that we are in the covenant of grace through faith and we are saved by God's grace through faith, not by works, right? Because we have been forgiven, we are now called to forgive. Because we have been loved, we have a now, the second thing, a new command to love, this is what makes followers of Jesus different. We can love in a whole different way because God has loved us in a whole different way. This is the marking the point for us that the rest of the world gets to see and know who we are because of how we love one another and how we love the world. We love with a sacrificial love and a love that doesn't look what I can get from other people but a love that says God you've given me so much and now I'm part of this covenant and so I can live a different kind of way. And I'm going to act different and be different. And my life is fundamentally transformed. I'm not going to judge you based upon what you deserve or how you've treated me. But I'm going to judge you based upon how God has treated me. And what he says that you are, his child, someone he cares for. And so we are freed not just from the old covenant of good works. But we get to keep good works. But now we are free to live with good motives. This is the way of Christ, a new command. And in that, Jesus gives us a new life. He paid a high price for this, but he did it so that we could live. There aren't enough animals out there to pay for the perpetual sacrifice for our ongoing sins. We need God to save us, and he did. He paid the price once for all time, and he did it not so that we can continue on in old dead ways of living, but so that we can live a new way of life in him. A life that doesn't fear God and the judgment that's coming, but one that embraces him and looks forward to his return, which we talk about tomorrow. So how do you apply this in your life today? Well, if you take out your connection card, there's a few things I'm going to invite you to do. The first one, would you memorize Matthew 16:24? Right? Doesn't it take on a whole new weight of meaning that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him? This is what we're called to do. We follow Christ's example. So I encourage you, take some time and memorize this passage. If we want to follow Jesus, let's follow Jesus. This is what he's calling us to. And this passage does help us. The second thing I'm going to encourage you to do is would you read John 13 through 19? That's a lot of the text that I, there's a lot in there that I wasn't able to cover today. Uh, There's a lot of stuff. Please read that. What Jesus t- teaches us in, that, in those passages is life-changing. Spend some time with the Word this week. Something else I'm going to challenge each way to do is to choose the new. Choose this new life by choosing to live in, in this new covenant by obeying this new command. Think about it this week. Are you loving other people? How are you doing? Your family members, your friends, your co-workers. How are you loving others like Christ loved? Recognizing and enjoying the fact that we live by grace in God's presence. Enjoying that. Choose the new this week intentionally. The last thing I'm going to encourage you to do is why don't you pray for what God's going to do here on September 19th. That's two weeks from now. Not just Great Chili. We want to see God's goodness reach the edges of this community and beyond, right? That means we want to bring the gospel to our community. Would you pray that will happen? Pray for those you're going to invite. Pray for the brothers and sisters that have been separated from us for some time. Pray that God will do something amazing. Because we work with him, not apart from him, right? I've given you all something to do at the end of this message. I hope that you would write those things down. Let me know what they are. If you've got a prayer request, put that on your connection card. And and then when we're done, would you please drop that in that offering box at the back of the room along with your tithes and your gifts. I would be most appreciative. All right, let me pray for you, and then we'll end with a song of commitment. Let's pray. Father God, you are the king of all ages. You are the creator of all things, and you are the savior of all the saints. You deserve all of of, of our praise, all the glory that there's ever been, and more. And so we praise you today, Father, with our life. We say thank you for the new covenant you've given us. We thank you for this new command that we can love because you've loved us. You're not a hateful God, but a loving one. Father, empower us now to live that new life in you and with you as we care for one another in this new life together. We've made commitments today, Lord, this is what we want to do. We want to live closer to you in the midst of them. We want to come to you, so help us to do that. Take these and our offerings and our tithes and bring yourself glory as you magnify your kingdom in and through us. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.